Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. I thought we would talk a little bit about, we mentioned this earlier, a little bit about the environment, but what I call um, a phrase I learned from somatic experiencing is creating the initial conditions in our meditation environment that will support students. And then I thought we would talk about the use of uh, invitational language. And then after that, I thought we might work in um, dyads or triads. I wonder what would be best. Maybe dyads um, to have the experience of, we might do triads depending on our time, to have the experience of maybe using some of these ideas that we're going to talk about of creating the initial conditions and some invitational language to see what it's like to maybe just guide somebody into a meditation practice and guide them out, you know, like a five minute practice of doing that. Um, and it may be that you feel like you don't do anything differently at this point because you have a great teacher and, um, the way that you're doing it, you really like, but maybe you would try a different word here or there and see how that goes as a teacher and then maybe see how it feels to receive, um, maybe a couple different options or, um, have the language feel like it's, more around choice. So um, the phrase I was looking for before we went on the break um, was uh, stimulus generalization. So is that uh, example of having a car accident at a stop sign and then kind of getting activated around that stop sign and then eventually getting activated in the neighborhood and then it's like maybe all the stop signs and then not feeling like you can drive a car anymore. So you're investing like the qualities of threat into non-threatening um, things or environments or maybe sometimes people. Um, and so there's this, it's like an inability to discriminate between different kinds of stimulation. Um, and so things just all things for, not all things, but many things start to become um, overstimulating and be uh, become threatening for a person, um, which is why I mentioned before that this can happen, like my example is a car accident at a stop sign, but how it plays out when it's that interpersonal kind of trauma um, and how that changes the way that we start to relate and interact with the people in the world around us. Um, so just a little bit about the brain to have, I think, more, um, compassion or empathy for what some of the people we work with may be experiencing or for what we may have experienced, um, is there's a person named Paul McLean, Dr. Paul McLean. Do any of you know Paul McLean or have heard about him? He talked about, um, the triune brain and these three major parts of the brain, 
Um, and the importance of recognizing these three major parts and their major functions in terms of how we understand trauma. Um, sort of thinking of them as three levels, and each level has its own language that it speaks. So the most recently evolved part of the brain is the neocortex. Um, and if you're like a brain person, this will feel very elementary to you. It's still very advanced and exciting to me. Um, but the language of the neocortex is the language of thought. And we're going to go a little bit more into that. This is going to be pretty general to start. The neocortex is the, speaks the language of thought. Um, and it's the most recently evolved. And then like just, just prior, like over many, 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 many uh, years and years and years, um, would be the second most recently evolved, the limbic brain. And it speaks the language of emotion. Um, and then the oldest part of the brain, the reptilian brain, speaks the language of sensation. So why this matters is that during a traumatic event, the neocortex, that area, the language of thought and communication is mostly offline. So people in the event of trauma are experiencing um, the trauma at the emotional level and at this um, sensory or sensational level of the reptilian brain. Um, and after trauma is, the trauma has completed or um, even many, many years after trauma, it can be that for some people they're still living their life from those uh, older, deeper parts of the brain, um, that those are more um, pronounced in their life and the way they orient to the world around them, which is why we see things like ongoing threat detection, which is coming from the limbic part of the brain, as a very, very common response for trauma survivors. Um, we also see sensation as being something that can be really, really um, Overwhelming, or people are highly sensitized to sensation as coming from the reptilian part of the brain. And during trauma, if those parts of us are really online, um, they're going to stay very, very sensitive afterwards. Um, and so I mentioned earlier that there's this heightened sensory awareness during traumatic events for people. So they may not have, without the cognitive part of the brain online, they don't have like a sequence for how the events happened. Or maybe every time they think of it, they think like, oh no, actually that happened first. Or wait, actually I remember that this song was playing or this person said that or the order is really disjointed. But they have a very clear memory of like the smell or like the color of the car that was in front of them or um, the song that was on the radio that they were listening to. So they have this like heightened sensory awareness that um, actually for the purposes of um, doing some sort of like criminal justice investigation around certain kinds of trauma, more and more um, detectives and police officers are doing more sensory oriented questioning of trauma survivors because they know that that's a better and more useful way to get information from them because for a period of time um, things will not be very linear and um, actually communication is very challenging in the immediate aftermath of trauma. Um, so talking about asking somebody, you know, was there any scent that you were aware of or any sounds you were aware of or um, texture or color, 
um, that can provide a lot of clues to help people put together um, the story. And that we see, I, I know that I see that more commonly because I work with sexual assault survivors um, and worked with a lot of detectives and police officers and saw actually that sort of evolution of their line of questioning during my time as an advocate as we were getting more resources from the psychology and trauma fields and starting to bring those a little bit more into the work we were doing with police officers because they were getting so upset with survivors who couldn't remember things or every time they told a story it came out differently which is a very natural response to trauma um, but they didn't have that understanding of the brain and what trauma does to the brain um, so that they were not believing survivors when they were telling their stories or when their story was changing. Um, so it's really important. We have a very long way to go uh, in terms of uh, educating and reforming and enhancing our criminal justice system so that it is trauma-informed, um, so that there can be a possibility of justice for people. But um, there, there are some moves that are happening in the right direction. Yeah. I'm just... It's a side note because you're American, so you might not know this. Um, I'm curious if this is going to be brought to Canada because I know that our eyewitness testimonies are not evidence held in court here yeah. in the States. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I always, I guess I make like an assumption that Canada is always like ahead of the United States in terms of like everything. But so, um, but on. Um, it's not like globalized throughout the United States either. There's like pockets of communities where law enforcement is doing trauma-informed work. And I would not be surprised that it would expand throughout the United States and will be expanding into Canada as well. Um, every There's a group... Um, there's a few groups in the United States that are increasingly like doing more conferences and more training for first responders and emergency responders and law enforcement and understanding um, the brain and trauma and best practices and trauma-informed care. But like in terms of our criminal justice systems, they just need like a major, major overhaul. And it's really hard because we have a whole our societies like don't have any information, uh, accurate information about what sexual assault is and how it not only um, will impact the brain, but just how it impacts the person and their behaviors. And so we have assumptions about uh, how people should behave afterwards that are completely false and based in like, you know, maybe a movie that we saw or SVU, what we saw on TV. SVU is a TV show in the United States. I don't know if it's yeah, here. Um, but it's where a lot of people get their education on like sexual violence and um, and how the criminal justice system works. So they have this like fantasy idea that it works really well and that people are like really thorough in their investigation. They really care about the survivor's safety and wellness and emotional safety. Um, and it really doesn't look like that actually in most places. Um, this is being recorded. So for the record, there are people that are doing good work um, around investigating sexual assault, but it's not the norm. And there's a really long way to go. And uh, obviously there's a really recent case here in Canada that brings to light all of the mythology um, around how sexual assault happens and how people 
behave. And we have so many stories right now also in the United States, you know, where, you know, two dozen women can come forward and say that somebody sexually assaulted them and we still don't believe them. So we're very invested, I think, in a culture is in keeping our, um, like heroes on their pedestals and that just enables their behavior and allows them to take advantage of that status. And they know that, their word counts more than, you know, other people's words. So they're able to get away with it, unfortunately. For now, it's changing. Um, so a few just key things about these different areas of the brain that are interesting to think about for trauma and for meditation is that um, during and after trauma, um, for the neocortex specifically, which is the language of thought, um, verbal expression, um, there's these two key areas that go um, that are, are suppressed. One of them is the Broca's area, B-R-O-C-A, um, and it's responsible responsible for speech production. So we hear survivors of trauma report that they couldn't even make a sound during like something was happening. They couldn't say like "Don't cross the street" or "Stop" or whatever it might have been. Um, that it's not even available to them. And part of that is, yes, this Broca's area. Part of it is actually the uh, paralysis of freeze that like makes any sort of movement or sound impossible for people. Um, but then there's another area, the Wernicke's area, which is around comprehension of language. And that part of the brain is also suppressed during and after trauma. Um, and so our ability to communicate and our ability to understand language is suppressed during and for some time afterwards. And they also found, um, they did some like research on people's brains where when they would, they would bring up the traumatic event and watch those parts of the brain go offline. So it makes sense that we have to rethink how we are not only like asking people questions about what happened to them if they're seeking, um, you know, some sort of support services, but also like is talk therapy going to be immediately where they need to go or the only place where they need to go? Um, or even if they go to work with a psychotherapist, how could that psychotherapist introduce other elements of like uh, body tracking and breath and orientation um, in order to, you know, help resource them because it's not only in service of, um, you know, helping them heal and um, find balance again, but it can also be really frustrating and defeating for the survivor to be asked questions that they, like, can't answer and they may want to answer and it feels like the memories are very, like, defragmented. Um, and that can be really alarming for people and they can feel like, okay, now not only have I gone through this traumatic event, but like something is wrong with my brain and I now have a whole other issue I have to figure out. Um, and that, you know, there's no like timeline for any of these changes in our brain. It's very unique and specific to each person. Um, the limbic area of the brain, which is the language of emotion and feeling, um, some of the kind of key things that happen there. Um, I mentioned the amygdala earlier um, that initiates the adrenaline response in the body. Um, and it also is, it's considered like the fire alarm of the brain. 
Um, and it becomes very overactive. It becomes active during trauma, but then it often stays very active. And so the fire alarm doesn't turn off in the brain. And so the person, even though there is no longer a threat and there's a certain level of safety, the brain is still sending signals on a physiological level that they're actually not safe and they're receiving hormones that are helping to prepare them to defend against something that doesn't need to be defended against. Um, so one of the things that happens is if the body is delivering you these hormones and these signals from the inside that you're not safe, then it can create the possibility that the person is then trying to make meaning out of their internal experience. They're like, I don't feel safe. I must not be safe. What around me isn't safe? And that can lead to the creation of a lack of safety that isn't actually happening. They may actually be safe, but the body is telling them something different. So that might be something that shows up um, when we're meditating, um, if we're starting to get those kinds of signals. Um, and, and I don't think that that is reduced to trauma, and I don't know that that's reduced to the amygdala. And I, again, am not a brain scientist, so um, while this is being recorded, now I'm worried about where it's going. I'm going to get a call from like some great neuroscientist in Washington, D.C. that says everything I said was wrong. But, um, but I think we can get signals from our body that we're not safe for a variety of reasons. Um, so when we are teaching meditation, thing, anything we can do to sort of normalize what may come up in the body and then um, prepare people with some orientation resources will go a, go a long way. Um, so if they are getting those signals, like I'm not safe, you know, like one of the first things I do with people, um, when I see this happen in yoga, it can often happen when their eyes are closed and so the first thing I'll do is say, can you open your eyes? And then I might say, maybe we'll look around the room and just identify a few things that stand out to you as you look around the room. What calls your attention? Um, can you notice, you know, t making contact with their body, uh, feeling their heartbeat? That sometimes works, sometimes doesn't, because maybe the heartbeat is, like, really, really fast. And then it's like, oh, my God, what's wrong? My heart. So working with a variety of tools that can orient them either through their body or through the space around them, um, or even tactile things. Like sometimes I'll have people do things like just try rubbing your hands together. What is that? Like notice that contact, even like watch the hands or touch your own body. Um, that can help people if they're starting to feel feelings of a lack of safety or if there's something in the environment that they should be afraid of. Um, the other thing that is another part of... Um, trauma that's important is the hippocampus is a part of the brain within the limbic part of the brain. So while I'm talking about these three parts, obviously there's like so many, there's many, many parts to the brain and the three is very generalized. But within that limbic area, there's the amygdala and there's also the hippocampus, which helps organize memory along a timeline of like a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, and that is offline during trauma. So people have a very non-linear and disorganized uh, memory of what happened and how it happened in addition to the fact that there's something in their brain that has not recorded the fact that the event has completed. So when they have something like a trigger occur, 
um, it feels like it's actually happening all over again because this memory is not um, stored in a part of the brain for like the memories of the past. It's stored in the brain in a way in which it's still actually very much alive within them. Um, and so it's, uh, again, just more orientation to the here and now. Um, I'll have people just say, you know, like, where are we in space? You know, we're at the Seaside Studio. What is this studio called? <coughs> we're at the Seaside Studio. We're in Vancouver. It's Tuesday. It's cloudy. I can hear the birds. They're doing some construction over there. Like, noticing where they are in space and helping establish a here and now. Um in your packets, there's a really, um, really great toolkit or guide to um, navigating triggers. Um, it's by a woman named Babette Rothschild, who's written quite a number of books around um, trauma and healing um, and really embodied psychotherapy practices. And she has a handful of books. I think the one I referenced was Eight Keys to Safe Trauma Recovery. And it's a, it's a really wonderful book um, if you're interested for yourself or other people. Um, and it is a cool book to even, um, you know, books like that or books like Waking the Tiger uh, by Peter Levine or any book that you love that's speaking about trauma in a way that speaks to you. Um, I always think that that's a great thing to bring to the people that you're working with in other areas of your healing. And um, if you're lucky and your healer has time and space, they can do a little bit of their own exploration of that material. Um, I know for me it was really helpful to have my therapist. When I told her, I was like, oh, my God, Peter Levine really understands me, and I want you to read this book, and then you'll understand me too. And she was like, okay, I'll get to the book. I'm curious about this method. It might take me a little while, but then we just had a conversation about, like, well, what about the book, and what about his description of trauma and fight, flight, and freeze resonates for you? So it was a really cool way just to open up the conversation um, and, and build greater rapport and give her more tools to understand how I am relating to my experience. Is your hand up? It is. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to finish it here. Oh. Um, I was just curious, and you might be getting to this, and this might be off topic in a sense of where, what our job is as meditator, you know, facilitating meditation, but I'm just curious, can trauma actually leave the body forever? And is there ways in which, or do you people continually get triggered like is there a way to be set free in that regard with and maybe this goes into story and all that stuff but so I'm just curious and oh I can't remember what else I was going to ask but that in general like is it possible yeah that's a really good question um I'm not sure um I haven't met people who say that they're like done with the trauma, um, I know that they are increasingly resilient, um, but but I'm not sure if it ever completely goes away. And I think I guess we might have to wait and see because there's so many new ways of working with it. Maybe it does for some people, um, and. Yeah, I don't know. That's not been my experience in, in the work that I've done and the people that I've met and the things that I've learned. But my experience <clears throat> is that it doesn't have to, like, direct your life 
at a certain point with more more resources online that it can be like a part of your life um and that it's actually okay that it occasionally does create certain kinds of responses and that we want to just continue like making space for them um but that hopefully we get connected to the kinds of people and healers and support systems that can help us um feel like we have integrated it to a certain to the extent that you can um, but maybe we can check in when I'm like 90 yeah. and I'll let you know if I feel like trauma free, but then it's like all these other traumas may happen, right? Because we just keep living. So it's like, I can't, yeah. So who knows what's ahead? Um, so I guess it, it's pretty complicated. I'm not sure. Does anybody know More the answer to that? generational because now we're seeing in survivor victims, Jewish Holocaust, yeah. people, there's a belief that it's, it's carried in our DNA. Yeah. Yeah. Certain generations or something, I think it is. Yeah. You go back to. That's really powerful, the indigenous people, you know, your First Nation people. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, it's really, really powerful. Yeah, like the research around yeah. epigenetics is, is yeah. really, really powerful. Bruce Lipton talks about it. I was going to say, Dr. Gabor Mate, too, he's, uh, like, that's where it comes, I was going to ask you, do you believe it's genetic, but, or is it epigenetics, like, is that carried, you know, like, does it, not, uh, you know, does it carry through generations, like the Holocaust, for example, okay, my grandparents were, you know, in camps and whatever, so. Yeah, I think that I, I mean, I'm just a regular person on the planet, but I would completely believe that, of course, it could be genetic. And, of course, then there's also just events that are happening that don't have anything to do with our genetics that are traumatic. But if you think about the ways in which it changes the brain and it changes the body, if it's changing our nervous system, our immune system is impacted, all of the systems of the body, our our cardiovascular system is impacted. Mm -hmm. If we're, you know, we know, like... um, what we experience while we're in the womb, you know, like what's going on for the mother who's carrying us can have an impact on us. So, I mean, it makes, it makes so much sense that it would be something that gets passed down. If you're in a really high level of stress, um, and toxic levels of stress that that doesn't necessarily just go away, but I'm not, um, I don't know enough about it to have like a, a, perspective that's worth like paying a whole lot of attention to other than to me it makes a lot of sense because I just to me that just makes a lot of sense I just don't see how it leaves yeah like it's part of your energetic it's like carbon into your energy so it's it's there yeah it's like how you maintain that yeah yeah how do you do do that yeah can I just back up a little bit yes back up so when you were describing somebody who's going into freeze Mm -hmm. Can you describe, like, what it looks like? Yes. How we might recognize it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially when we're in a room where people are look a little bit frozen. Yeah, yeah, that's um, true. Because, like, most of the ways people sit are imitating a sculpture. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, like, how would we be able to recognize freeze? Yeah. And then, like, how would we approach it? Yeah, that's a really good what question. Would we do? Um, I think it's particularly complicated in meditation because of the way that the posture looks. Um, some of the things that I will notice, um, for people who are going into freeze 
is like a sort of vacant expression in their eyes. And so I think that that can happen um, in meditation, uh, like a lot, that there's like this spaced out look in the eyes. Um, another thing um, is like a stiffness of the body, which again, I think you look around the room and people are trying to like hold their seat really firmly. Um, so I'm going to list a few of these things and then we'll possibly realize that it's really hard to see it from the outside. Um, another thing is noticing their breathing. So how are they breathing? Are, can you see any like movement? Can you see like a rise and fall of the breath in the chest or the abdomen? Um, can you see any pulsation through the arteries in the neck? Um, are they, does it basically, I mean, it kind of would look like from the outside that they're frozen. And again, that can be very hard to distinguish when somebody's sitting in meditation. Um, in terms of, yes. Just a question about yeah. breath. Could it become really like, like, or is that a freeze response or more like a panic attack? For, from my understanding and my experience, that might be more like a fight or flight, like prior to freeze, but it could escalate into freeze. So the thing is, um, so there's fight and flight happen in the sympathetic nervous system and it like prepares us to do something, to take action, to either escape a situation or to confront a situation. And so there can be this like building of energy and that kind of like breathing and warmth in the body can start to feel like that. But if it doesn't get, um, if it doesn't meet like a threshold where it can start to quell, maybe it's like, oh, everything's okay. I'm fine. Like I opened my eyes and I looked around and I'm safe and I felt the ground or eyes, my partner's sitting right next to me or I held that person's hand. Then as it keeps going, it crosses this threshold of what's um, tolerable for the nervous system and fight and flight aren't something that's available for the person anymore. So it doesn't actually, they don't actually act out the fight or flight and they aren't shown that there is a resource for safety to help them calm down again and relax and settle. So it just keeps going up and as it passes this certain threshold, that's when it shifts into a freeze state. Um, so it's, but freeze, the thing is, is freeze is... Uh, not necessarily a terrible thing. Freeze is A, how people survive trauma in the first place. Freeze is how people will cope with really overwhelming or difficult situations after trauma. Um, and there is a capacity over time with a good support person to be in freeze and still be able to be like a witness and still observe freeze is happening and still be able to report that the freeze is happening. So I've worked with a lot of people where they will actually say, I think I'm like going into freeze because we've talked enough about what it looks like and what it feels like. And then I'm like, okay. And so we're doing some resourcing to notice that that's happening and then like orient back into the room or orient back into the body or talk about what might be useful. So is, um, so is freeze dissociation? Well, that's I think that's a big debate in the psychology community because I think dissociation is um, considered more like a, a mental pattern that's happening or a mental move, and freeze is more of like an organismic physiological response that is more 
than um, like a mental checking out. Right. Um, so I don't have the answer for that so, question, so that but I think you it's probably being wouldn't debated. Necessarily know. Yeah, if you, freeze was happening until you're communicating with somebody. Right, and so that's why I don't. So that's where I'm going, which is why it's so it's difficult in meditation. I can see it when I'm like sitting with somebody, which is how I'm usually, and we're engaged in a conversation. I can see when they're starting to like escalate and when they're starting to kind of go away from me and like leave in, in a certain uh, way. Um, but you can't see that during meditation. Even when I see that, and I think it's happening. I don't make an assumption. I say like, what do things look like now? You know, if, because there's time in, in the somatic experiencing technique, there's like a ask, there's some asking of questions, but then there's space between the, the asking of questions. Um, and sometimes the space is a couple of breaths or a minute and the person's kind of hanging out with either a movement or a feeling in the body um, or maybe some meaning that they've just arrived at and it may be quiet for a minute and I've said maybe they said um, maybe they were doing this like feeling they were feeling their legs and so I might have called their attention to it and I say something like what might it be like to kind of just stay with that feeling a little bit longer and they might say that'd be cool um, or sure, whatever. And then they're doing that and I'm not talking while they're doing it. I'm just watching. And, um, and then maybe I see it kind of slow down and then I see it stop. And then, um, and then there's still some silence because we're trying to actually do less actually in these sessions than more, like less intervention is as least interventions as possible actually. And so, um, so, but then I might see that shift towards like stillness and say, what do things look like now? Or how are things feeling now? Or what are you noticing now? And they might say, I notice that like, I can't, I can't feel anything from my neck down. And so, um, we might do some orientation to see like, well, what is that like for you? And then what would it be like to take that sensation that, that you notice in your head and see if you could maybe just bring it down a little bit. And that might happen through their mind or it might be like through making contact with different parts of their body or tuning into their breath or changing their posture. Um, but it's, it's like none of these things, we can see what we think is happening, but it's so important to actually ask the person what is happening because our ways of experiencing these different physiological states are very specific to us. And what I can tolerate is different from what the person sitting next to me can tolerate. When I'm comfortable, like I'm slightly comfortable going into freeze while I'm like in the world and um like can be aware that i'm in freeze and be aware that like it's okay and here i am in this kind of altered state and i'm interested in coming back and so what might i want to do right now um, but other people they might get there and if they get there and it becomes overwhelming that's when i think you might start to notice and that might be the person who stands up and is like i'm out of here they may try to shift the state really quickly um, or they may lay down, um, or you may see them start to cry. Um, crying is sometimes considered like a, actually like the nervous system has met the threshold and is actually starting to settle and it's actually somewhat of a release, not always, but often it can be. So the crying may be that they got into this place and then their nervous system helped deactivate it through 
the release of emotion. Um, but so, I, yeah. If, yeah. If I can just keep going yeah. with the question. Yeah. But there would be there's different kinds of crying. There's so many kinds of crying. So, is there a kind of crying that's related to freeze? I'm or not a no. I I mean I wouldn't say that there is because right. it's so person specific. What I do know... Because like sometimes in meditation I can hear somebody crying. Yeah. And it, I just like, I'm aware of it and I don't. Yeah. It doesn't, no radar goes off from yeah. it. It's just like, oh, yeah. that's that kind of crying. Yeah. And then sometimes there's another kind of crying where it's like, I'm really paying attention to what's yeah. going on for that person. I would trust your radar. Uh-huh. Um, and that's what we're asked to do in the SE practice is really notice how that person's what that person's response is bringing up in us and to actually be curious about how, like what it's stirring up in us. So if it's stirring up like a level of concern, then we want to check in about it. Um, if we feel like, Oh yeah, that looks like a really healthy, like settling and just a release of some stagnant, stagnant emotion. Um, but I can see that this person is still online. Um, then we trust that too. So, um, I know that when we're crying in somatic experiencing practice, that often um, will be, they don't just let us just like ball for extended periods of time. Actually, it's actually kind of, uh, it's titrated, which is a word you hear a lot in Peter's books, where it's like these little doses of traumatic material are being worked with at a time and then we're coming back to like resources and orientation and presence and grounding and almost after so we might let somebody cry like maybe they cry for a minute and um we're supporting them through that process and then we might um invite them to orient back into the room because one of the things that can happen is if somebody is crying and it just keeps going and going and going they can get more and more activated but we have to be pretty um i think skillful in the intervention because we don't want to make people feel like we're trying to shut down their response um and so there's often like a lot of ongoing education that it's in service of helping um pieces of it come out in a way that's actually like digestible for the nervous system. We are not going for catharsis or like blowing people's nervous systems out. Um, that tends to be really overwhelming and end up being, you know, really destabilizing for people and doesn't necessarily support like ongoing long-term resilience practice. So these little bits and pieces at a time tend to be most helpful um, one we, of the... We've been training in the same way, which is... Oh, really? Like, cool. Um, bringing people back, checking in, honoring what's happening for them, and not getting into the content yes. of what they're, what they're doing, not exploring that. I mean, I don't even need to be just here, to, because this is so mind. good. This yeah, is so <laughs> great. Clarification question. Yes. Is it fight or flight or freeze? Is it fight or flight, then freeze? Because I think that's a different observation. Yeah. If, if freeze is the the end result of not being able to fight or flee, then you go into freeze. That, I mean, to me, that would signal you would see panic prior to a frozen state. This is so wonderful. This brings me to a later part of our conversation, which we should actually get to, um, which is that, um, so fight and flight are the more uh, 
more modern survival responses. Freeze is like the oldest. We share that response with reptiles. Like now that I'm really interested in, I'm actually just, I'm interested in fight and flight, but I'm more interested in freeze. Um, But when I'm on a trail and I encounter like a little salamander or a lizard, you know, on the trail and it's like, stops and I'm like oh my gosh you're in freeze right now but I totally want to take your picture because you're so cute and I'm gonna be really fast I'm just gonna take a little picture and we're and like I'll be with my husband like we really have to walk like four feet out of the way because it's so scared right now let's give it some space so um anyway yeah yeah I should they're so cute um so so it's the it's our it's our oldest survival response, and so so fight and flight when they are either um, like thwarted, they get stopped. We attempt them, and they something stops them from being a viable escape. Um, then the nervous system will escalate into freeze as like a last ditch survival mechanism. Um, however. If you have experienced multiple forms of trauma, your nervous system will learn in time over these repeated experiences that fight and flight don't work, and it is more likely to just default to freeze and skip fight or flight. Okay, so we may not see it then. So you may not see it, and this is something that is really important um, for for children who've experienced abuse. First of all, they're more likely to go to freeze than an adult person um, who's got a lot of like resources and ego and um, but children are not developmentally in a place that an adult is and they're more likely to move into the freeze state and then for them if they're experiencing ongoing abuse fight and flight will not even be online for them and their body will just immediately go into freeze. Um, and there's uh, Peter, my friend Peter describes um, shame as the emotion of freeze. So freeze had an emotion. The emotion for many trauma survivors is that of shame because there's the immobility that happens during freeze, this kind of whole being uh, paralysis that makes a person feel like they either participated in the traumatic event that happened to them or that they just failed to do anything to stop it. And so it's really um, particularly difficult for people that when they feel like they were complicit in the violence that was done to them or the harms that were done to them um, and creates this whole other level of shame. And shame is um, a trickier emotion to work with than like anger or grief like anger you can do a lot of things to work on processing it and getting it out and grief there can be a lot of tears and sadness shame is a little bit more like subtle in ways Um, but what they have seen is the number one like resource to support and heal shame is relationships so um, that working with a person or being in a positive relationship Um, can actually go a long way to help people uh, get liberated from the shame that they feel from the trauma that occurred. Did you have a hand up? Yeah. Do you think it's possible to experience the shaking that um, an animal or including humans have 
to deal with freeze. Can we experience that shaking without going into a state of freeze after a traumatic event? Yes. So what people will um, report about their experience is even um, just talking about something that is maybe pretty sensitive or maybe intimate or maybe associated with the trauma or the memory or the story, they might start to actually feel a little bit of like this like trembling. And it could be like really, really subtle that maybe the nobody else around them notices, but they can actually feel. Um, a lot of times they'll feel it like in the jaw. Um, and then usually most of us, if we're in an environment and we start to feel those feelings, we'll just clench the jaw really hard to kind of like quell it or like squeeze all the muscles to kind of like stop the shaking from happening, um, which can, you know, be useful in certain times and places. But yeah, the, the trembling is, is something that will come up for people not in freeze, but it's this un, it's this, as Peter would describe, it's this incomplete motor process at a nervous system level that actually wants completion and we're getting these little like hints at it at different stages in our life um there's i know that i experienced before before learning too much about it i was experiencing the trembling and i was and i never told anybody about it because i was like open about a thousand other things but that thing i was like that's just like a really bizarre thing that i do and it kind of creeps me out i should probably talk to somebody about it cuz something could be wrong but i seem to be able to like stop it when it's happening um but then the more i learned the more i learned that we'll actually start noticing and tracking when the trembling's coming um and then maybe figure out, is there a person that you can work with to start to actually let the trembling emerge? Because it's, it's a very vulnerable practice. It's, a, it's, it's even kind of vulnerable when you're doing the like playful shaking, but it's really, really vulnerable when the shaking isn't something that we're doing to our body. Like when we were demonstrating like the practice of like shaking things off, which is really, really powerful. The shaking is coming through us. We actually have to like allow this very bizarre thing that we usually don't experience in our day-to-day life to actually start to happen, um, which can feel like, uh, it can feel possessive. It can, yeah, it can feel like something is happening that you don't have control over. Um, and I was, you know, getting a lot of emails from somebody recently who was like exploring their, this, this tremble and the shaking on their own. And I was really encouraging them while still giving them options, um, to seek support, to get some safety and some containment around that shaking because it was starting to come up for him and he was wanting to follow it. But then what was happening is it was escalating into some really extreme like mental states for him. So, um, so it is, I think, really important that we do, if something like that is coming through us or we're kind of curious, like we've noticed uh, maybe once or twice a little bit of a tremble and we want to learn more about it, that maybe we would do it with the safety of another person. And it, could, it doesn't necessarily have to be a therapist, but it could be somebody else who is a safe resourcing person who can show up and, and provide some grounding skills uh, for you if you're going to look at that a little bit. Yes? Is the shaking um, related to a feeling of getting quite cold, like regardless of 
temperature? Temperature is really different for different people. So um, there can be like some generalizations around temperature, but again, each person, because it's, it's um, different areas of our body are impacted very uniquely. So um, it's like that unique combination within their own nervous system that will produce its own sort of symptoms or sensations. So temperature um, can be really cold typically for freeze, so it's appropriately named, um, but not always. So it's, it's hard to have any sort of like rule around exactly what any of those states look like. If you do more work, and this is like, this conversation around it is really like this conversation we're having just right now is could be kind of stretched out into three years. It's sort of this is the conversation, fight, flight, and freeze, that the somatic experiencing training is, and it's a three-year conversation. So if you're curious, there's so many cool like articles and books um, that, again, you don't have to be a psychotherapist uh, to connect with and to understand, and you can get a lot. You can get a lot out of them. Um, so, to go back to your question, it's really hard to see it happening. And I would probably say, like, follow your own internal radars that are coming up. If you hear some sniffling and then you notice that it kind of quells, but if you hear something happening and you feel like it's escalating or just the energy of it, you know, you're highly sensitized humans probably at this point in your practice. If something just doesn't feel right, um, that's where I think it's really important that you preface the practice with the possibility that you may check in with people. Um, and that can be more important maybe for extended periods of time for practice, but it can also be important if it's a short practice because we never know what's going to emerge um, in that short practice. So um, I, I think that there's, you know, again, you have to figure out what makes sense for your teaching, but to let people know that you'll be kind of attending to the space um, and working to create a container for the space and that if you notice that somebody is becoming activated um, that you may check in with them just to make sure they feel like they have the resources and support they need and that it's perfectly fine if they don't feel like they need those resources. And just like taking any stigma out of the teacher checking in with you because that can also feel like, oh, no, I'm going to like quell this because I feel like there's something wrong if the teacher has to check in with me, um, which is also why it's important that you normalize the possibility that things may arise so that they don't feel like something's wrong with them if things do start to get um, pushed a little bit by the practice. Um, I wish I had a better answer. I wish there was like a, like a, they turned blue or something when it happened. So like a, like a pretty blue so that you could know like, oh, that's someone I would like to check in with right now. Pardon me? They often stop swallowing. Yeah, yeah. Swallowing will stop. Um... (laughs) For some people in freeze, there the production of tears will also stop. So there actually may be no tears um, when they're in freeze, and for some time afterwards, yeah. Uh, just to understand better, so when they're in freeze, can they understand you and can they talk? Can yes. They yeah. Can they move their body? Is the body just stiff or they can't? It's going to be different for different people. So. Um, 
So it's good to check in with them and to ask them. Like I'd say things like, would movement feel like a good idea right now? And they might say like, uh, yeah, I just need to change my position. And sometimes people will start to get really activated and it could be that there's like, because of the way they're sitting, they're like, they're not getting circulation through their body. So sometimes like just standing up slowly or just coming to their knees and like coming into child's pose and then like coming back and changing their position may help and be enough to kind of help like orient them back into their body. Um, but sometimes people, you know, I think I haven't seen, I haven't worked with anyone that's gone into freeze to the extent where they couldn't speak. Um, and I, I don't know if that's because when they're with me, they're not experiencing a trauma. I know almost everyone I know that um, has experienced specifically sexual assault froze and couldn't, was completely paralyzed during the event. Um, I think the statistic is... Um, around 75% of adult survivors of sexual assault will go into paralysis freeze. Um, and I think it's around 90% of child survivors. I feel like it's possibly much higher than that. Um, but again, some of our like languaging around what these states feel like and our definitions around what constitutes um, sexual abuse and violence are pretty limited. So I think just... Um, making contact with the person and and you also don't have to be like afraid of them like they're they're still on the planet they're still here they're still living and breathing um they're just in a place where they're like not uh fully present and maybe part of them is really present you know and like i see that a lot that somebody can report like i feel like i am completely frozen right now i don't have access to anywhere in my body I feel like I'm just this voice or this mind that's talking um and they're they're not necessarily completely overwhelmed by it or startled by it um so we don't have to be like afraid of somebody if they go into that state and um the interpersonal communication and connection is a really key resource for settling people and like that's what they'll say in our training is like the number one like settling grounding resource in this practice is you as their practitioner or teacher so the sound of your voice being able to just see you in the room to know where you are in the room all of those things can help the person feel a connection to another person and can help to settle their nervous system um yeah, let's do one more question and then we're going to talk about something else. And we have to, we're going to conclude around three, so I want to give you a little bit of time just mm -hmm. to be with each other and do um, some of these practices. 